humans are ungovernable. Those who serve the revolution have plowed the sea. They go now to embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning. It's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense. And eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 156 of Embrace the Void where we can all agree this is pretty unagreeable. I am your host, Aaron, and this week I'm joined by an old friend to discuss some unresolvable political voidiness. So let's make with the reunion. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Marcus Schultz-Bergen, a teaching professor in philosophy at Cleveland State University, whose interests include ethics and political philosophy. Marcus is also a former colleague of mine from Colorado State's Terminal Master's program. So, well, so good to see you, Marcus. Would you like to say hi to the void? Sure. I'll say hi to everyone that's uh, hopefully going to listen at some point. I'm happy to, to be on this. Uh, and it's also, of course, good to chat with you again after nine-ish years or so. It's been a while. It has been quite a while. How, yeah. how is, how's things going for you? How's the slow collapse of higher education going for you? I, I think I say this kind of sadly, but like not too bad, actually. Mm-hmm. For me, like, you know, personally speaking, I should mm-hmm. say, just because I think Cleveland State's handled things reasonably well and I, I'm, I'm feeling okay, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't I don't take that as a... I take that more as luck than an indication of how things really are going. Yeah, I feel fairly sympathetic to that, actually, in that I, I feel like I've ended up in a fairly lucky position with my situation with both uh, getting to teach at Rutgers and getting to go to their PhD program, that it's just been uh, fortuitous timing in, amidst a bunch of other people having a really rough time. So I, I think we, we share yeah. in guilt on that one. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I don't really like admitting that it's going okay. Yeah. Do you have any feeling about like any sense of where things are going in for y'all? Are you are y'all full? Like one thing I want to ask people, like when I whenever I want to talk to like educators on the show right now, is like what is the what does the the battle look like on your front in terms of online versus in person, and like what are they trying to do, and you know like how angry are the students at the out various outcomes that are being presented to them? So. My read on it overall, I, I feel like Cleveland State uh, has done a pretty good job of handling it. Usually they've they've been one of the later uh, universities to have a plan in any given state, but like just because they're sort of reading the situation longer. Mm-hmm. And at this point, at this point, they decided to um, most classes are going to be remote. Um, all of mine are. Um, mm-hmm. They are doing some stuff on campus, which is basically like things that demand sort of face to face interaction. So labs mm-hmm. or music where you're actually using instruments um but then they're also having basically like first year classes mm-hmm. stu- classes that would be largely populated by first year students in face-to-face but socially distant and so mm. i think that one was a little surprising Weird. for a lot of people yeah. and i don't know how that will go um it, but uh but yeah overall i think it's been pretty good um they've also committed heavily to helping faculty learn how to do remote teaching. Yeah, I was going to ask what the how, how you feel the support has been going on that front as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I taught a good amount online mm-hmm. during my PhD, so I felt reasonably comfortable with it, but obviously um, plenty of people aren't. And so um, during this summer, actually right now, uh, they uh, set up a variety of sort of professional development, how to teach online kind of classes for faculty. And incentivized it by paying fa- faculty extra money. Oh wow! For if they choose to do that's, it, that's the yeah. first I've heard of anybody getting uh, extra money for their extra work, learning all of this stuff. Yeah. Well, we even we even paid our, all of our part timers extra money last semester when they had to move their classes online. Really? Partway through the semester. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I was really wow. surprised too. <laughs> no, I'm very surprised. I've heard nothing like that from anyone so far. <laughs> that's great. I mean, I'm glad they're doing that. I, that's that's really impressive. I wonder. I, I mean, like, I'm curious 
why their model looks different than so many other university models that are like not doing any of those things. And I'm also curious, like, are they also reducing tuition given that things are going to be largely online or are they keeping tuition at maximum or, you know, at like the current rate or stuff like that? I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with stuff on that end or not, but, you know. Yeah, one thing I am familiar with on that end, um, so I don't know if they're reducing tuition directly, but they did, and I think this was already planned, but they decided to still roll it out, a, um, I think what they're calling like a two-for-one mm -hmm. deal, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, students, first-year students, um, who or, or students first coming to CSU, whether they're transferring mm -hmm. or not, they if they complete their fall semester, this fall semester, Mm -hmm. you know, with a minimal GPA and all that stuff, then their spring semester tuition is waived. Ooh. Wow. Sounds like y'all should be getting like yeah. more headlines as being like a, a solid model for the way that more universities should be working. Yeah. That's yeah. I honestly think so. Like I said, there's, there's definitely probably a few spots that some people are going to poke at that aren't necessarily affecting me directly, but I think overall it's been, been pretty good. It's pretty amazing. I'm really curious to know what the, what the system has been that has led to, what sounds like a, a sub better outcome than we've seen in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. and I, yeah. I don't know about that. No. Part. I don't know how, I don't know how they got to this point, but I know that they got to a decent yeah, point. So all you journalists out there listening, go do some research on why um, uh, Cleveland state <laughs> university is crushing it on this front apparently. So yeah. I'm really excited to have you on today because I remember even back, you know, although those many years ago, you very much love talking about liberalism. Um, and I personally identify as a liberal, uh, but I feel like the meaning of that word has been sort of in motion in my lifetime. Um, and I'm curious, I'm curious, first of all, how you self-identify. Do you self-identify as a liberal and as some particular kind of liberal? And also, like, what does the word liberal mean to you at this point? Yeah, I am not really that concerned about labeling myself, I guess, as a liberal. And I used to probably never do it at all, but I've done it more recently hmm. only because I think that... Um, it's, it's not, you know, I was always sort of committed to liberal political principles and stuff like that. It's just that I don't really care about what camp I'm in. But more recently, because sort of liberalism gets is getting trashed uh, in a lot of ways from all sides, mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's more important to um, sort of state, uh, put yourself out there a little bit to say, uh -huh. no, 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 liberalism's worth something. And, and here's, here's how it's still worth paying attention to and stuff like that. Uh -huh. See, I'm sympathetic to that too. Yeah, I've I've like stuck by calling myself a liberal when everyone seems like they should you should, should switch switch to be you know progressive or lefty or something like that. Yeah, well, I do see liberalism as at mm -hmm. least um, I think it can encompass leftist sure. progressive sort of stuff, but I but I think in certain ways it might also be distinct from that, or mm -hmm. or at least the sort of liberalism I am consider uh, thinking of is not necessarily identical with some of that stuff anyway yes so what does liberalism mean to you then yeah yeah so i like to i mean i do try to keep a pretty thin definition of liberalism so i think the way i see it is it's a much bigger camp than maybe some other people see it okay. as so that's why it can encompass a lot of other things that we might not normally call liberal maybe mm -hmm. and so it, for me it's just like a couple of theses or a couple of commitments that all liberals share basically um and I think it's those commitments are largely captured just in the sort of simple motto, every person is free and equal. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that captures a commitment, for instance, to moral individualism. Mm -hmm. uh, since it's every person, right, it's already focused on the good of individuals. Um, and so the moral individualism thesis is that the good of individuals is prior to the good of groups um, or nation states, you know, right? that's a type of group. Mm -hmm. And I also think it captures... Um, Right, the idea that any liberal, any specific liberal theory or any specific liberal person, I guess, needs to have some relatively um, thick concept, conception and fundamental commitment to uh, individual liberty, as well as a thick conception and fundamental commitment to social equality. Okay. Um, and so I think what divides a lot of liberalisms just is on what their specific conceptions of freedom or their specific conceptions of equality or both um, might be. Interesting. So oh, there's a lot going on there. So in, in one sense, we might say like there's the kind of uh, million sort of liberal theme of freedom of things like speech and action and such like that. But then there's also the kind of 
Rawlsian liberal theme of needing to, you know, improve the quality of life of those who were worse off as a, you know, correct social justice in various kinds of ways so as to bring about a more just and equitable society. You would say that those are sort of the two key strands of what you see as liberalism? Yeah, or at least, I mean, I, I think those, when you put them that way, they have a, a nice little um, sort of extreme version of, uh, on, kind of extreme version on either mm -hmm. side. Because they are intentions sometimes, we would say. Sometimes, yeah. But I think, you know, all, all sort of specific liberal theories have to have a view about both freedom and equality mm -hmm. and some sort of view about how they interrelate. Inter inter mm -hmm. So Millian liberalism is still going to have a view about equality. Right. Rawlsian liberalism is still going to have a view about liberty. But yeah, it just so happens often what, you know, one of the two maybe gets more preference or gets more focus or something like right. that. Right, that Mills is going to come from his utilitarianism, right, where Rawls is going to come from more of his deontological views. Um, I'm curious about one other thing that you pointed out there that, uh, you know, something that comes up a lot in debates about liberalism right now is, is liberalism potentially bad because it focuses too much on the individual in some ways, right? Has it overemphasized the well-being of the individual in such a way where it moved us away from, you know, understanding things like, you know, the well-being of the individual is fundamentally inseparable from the well-being of the group? And I'm not saying that, like, liberalism can't accommodate that uh, concept, um, but do you worry about you know, in saying that the well-being of the individual is more important than the well-being of the group, you set up a kind of uh, conflict there that could, um, and, and like, prejudge the analysis of that con uh, conflict in such a way where we don't see, you know, the situations where it really is valuable to sacrifice the well-being of, you know, some individuals for the sake of the overall well-being of the group, including, you know, the vast majority of individuals. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's always going to be that sort of um, tension or, or potential problem in liberalism mm -hmm. because, and, and we've definitely seen this with some, you know, historical liberal theories, they do put so much of an emphasis on the individual and they do regard the individual as sort of this atomistic uh, thing. You know, humans are just billiard, bar billiard balls mm -hmm. uh, bouncing around, hitting each other. Right. And I think that view is wrong, but that doesn't mean the moral individualism commitment is wrong. Um, I think it just means that, we need to recognize that obviously it is true that the good of an individual is wrapped up in the good of a variety of different groups that they might interact with or be a part of in their lives. So I don't think the moral individualism says the good of the groups doesn't matter, uh, but rather it matters because of the individual's uh, good. Mm -hmm. Right. And so sometimes that might, those might come into conflict and, and if those come into conflict, we should prefer the good of the individual. So I think that, I'm committed to that kind of idea, but I don't think that I think in many cases, um, what appears to be a conflict between the good of the individual and the good of the group mm -hmm. might rather just be a conflict between the long-term good of the individual and the short-term good of the individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean like right? so a major example here would be like a tragedy of the commons kind of situation, right? Where we do harm individuals by limiting their access to the common for the sake of, you know, what, what seems like the greater good, where you may still be right that, like, the greater good is cashed out in, like, the overall aggregate good of individuals over a longer period of time or something like that. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that. Now, let me ask you something else, since we're sort of hashing out our, our, our basic definitions here. Something that I think often also gets associated with that individualism in liberalism is the kind of rationalist individual view, where, like, human beings are, you know, sufficiently advanced rational beings that, um, you know, so stuff like, you know, it make it is the case that, uh, so, you know, discourse and debate is the best way for us to uh, engage and improve our knowledge or things like that. I'm curious if you think that that is key to liberalism, the way that the tension between freedom and equity is sort of key to liberalism, or is that something that you could sort of take or leave as a liberal? Yeah, I think I could largely take or leave it. I mean, what what you just described seems to me as like, I guess, a hypothesis about how particular human societies at particular times and about how they would function mm -hmm. well. And it, and, it, and it might actually turn out to be correct in certain contexts, mm -hmm. right? But I don't think it's like a fundamental thing. Right. I think it, it would follow from the commitments to things like freedom and equality that the best way to uh, make sure to achieve whatever our conceptions of freedom and equality are happens to be through um, debate and all that, 
all that stuff. So would you say that like the value of the freedom and this may be jumping ahead because I know you want to talk about utilitarian liberalism a little bit some, but like is the value mm -hmm. of like the freedom of discourse that it actually does, you know, make it easier for, you know, the truth to win out over falsehood or, you know, is it like if we, you know, if we started to get the data back and we were like, nope, this is not helping out for the truth. Like, would you then say that we should move to a more illiberal model for the sake of preserving, you know, like utility or should we try to maintain these, um, you know, liberal ideals, even if it comes at a substantial cost? Probably somewhere in between mm -hmm. those two options you gave me, I think. Um, so I, I, I don't think the only value of debate would be that it produces good social outcomes. Mm -hmm. Like, I think you know, people want to be able to express themselves as well, for instance, mm -hmm. right? And so that in and of itself is a good, even if that expression is not particularly helpful, mm -hmm. right? So if we got a lot of information that like, you know, just having people, I, I don't know what this would look like, I guess, but having people interact with each other uh, in any sort of political debate is just always going to lead us to much worse outcomes. And if we didn't have that mm -hmm. happen, maybe we should try to turn people towards having their debates about other things, mm. I guess, or something like that. Uh, but I wouldn't, I don't think it would be a necessarily a justification for like eliminating people's ability to discuss such things or something like that. Cause there are again, other goods that come from right. it, even if there's not that larger one, but I do think like the, you know, a million style argument for something like freedom of speech always pairs together this idea of um, it being simultaneously good for the individual mm -hmm. and good for the group. Mm -hmm. Not in the same way, of course, and not for the same reason. Right. And sometimes those can come into conflict. But yeah, the sort of enlightenment commitment from from someone like Mill is that it will, will be good for the good uh, for the community and for the individual mm -hmm. um, in both cases. I'm curious to ask you, and I know it's ridiculous for one philosopher to ask another an empirical question like this, but do you have any inclination from what you've seen about this debate debate question, and that like do debates and the free exchange of ideas and the confronting of truth with error and all of that, do you think that that actually uh, does tend to help people? Is something that can help in certain situations? Or like, do you think it's something good to practice, but like ultimately persuasion is accomplished via other means? Yeah, it's definitely good to practice and it definitely can be useful in certain circumstances. But I think there, it, it probably is an overstatement to say we should just have like wide ranging, really open political debate among everyone. Mm -hmm. Again, not to say we should not allow it, but rather maybe we shouldn't encourage it because, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, it seems like a lot of the evidence, particularly about political debate, is that people tend to be more tribalistic, right? They're not trying to actually change their views or understand the issues or anything like that. They're just trying to signal to their group mm -hmm. you know, what, that, that they're a part of the group or whatever the case may be. And so, yeah, I don't think that sort of public debate particularly helps, but there can be plenty of situations where it can. You can get people in the right sorts of frames, the right sorts of people, and the right sorts of conditions that can have a lot of benefit, but even like the empirical research on deliberative democracy mm -hmm. or just deliberation, right? As a, as a way of trying to support deliberative democracy seems to show that a lot of what's going on there doesn't really amount to, um, truly free reason debate mm -hmm. that leads to, um, change of, of mind or anything like that. If change of mind happens, it's because one person was, you know, they were attractive and they were the ones that spoke, mm -hmm. right. Or they spoke the most you know, a variety of other things that we don't think are necessarily should be the basis of our, of us changing our opinions or accepting a view or something like mm -hmm. that, but do often, unfortunately, cause the change. Something you, you sort of, this is, a, this is a common way this is suggesting, you know, like, it's sort of a dismissal of these things to point out that it's often signaling to your in-group rather than, like, trying to change minds. I've actually been sort of increasingly wanting to, like, push back on the common sense wisdom that, like, signaling to in-groups is necessarily a bad thing. And I'm not saying that you were implying that, but I just think it's it's valuable to think about, like, other ways in which those debates can be valuable where you, you can signal, for example, to your group, I'm going to engage with this the person and I'm going to disagree with them and I'm going to do it in a certain kind of way that will model a certain kind of behavior that I would like it if possible for people who, you know, think that I'm, you know, someone who should be, you know, followed, right? Like then you should also engage with people who hold this kind of view in this similar kind of way. And that could be in a less derogatory kind of way. It could be in a more confrontational kind of way potentially. But like, I think there's value in the modeling of that behavior to one 
one's own group and that modeling doesn't always have to take the form of like shameless dunking and like you know uh bowing to your own audience kind of stuff yeah absolutely and and, and of course you know signaling to your in-group or, or, or sort of doing what your in-group expects of you, certain in-groups or certain groups you might be a part of mm-hmm. may encourage you to actually engage with people who disagree mm-hmm. with you or, you know, read uh, broadly or, you know, things like that. And so, um, but even the ones that don't, even the ones that do sort of try to, to hem people in, um, yeah, there can still be value in, in attempting to have those debates and attempting to model what what a good conversation would look like and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a, it's not to say don't do it at all or anything like that, but I do think we should probably not put our, um, like as a society, we should not put our hope into public debate <laughs> as the means by which we're going to move forward with a lot of okay, things. Okay, perfect. So now that I've got like you- to change, to change opinion, to change opinion. Right, now I've got you in this gotcha trap. I want to ask you about what public reasons liberalism <laughs> is. Oh, good. <laughs> right, because um, as I understand <laughs> it, liberalism is often described as public reasons liberalism. And I'm curious, can you explain a little bit what, what is meant by public reasons liberalism and like what sort of the major forms of public reason liberalism are? And then we can talk about why they all fail completely. Sure, sure. Yeah. So public reason liberalism, or sometimes other people call it political liberalism as well. That was the title of of Rawls's later book that sort of is a public reason liberal view. So, you know, they kind of refer to the same thing, although non-political liberalisms could still have a a view about public reasons, Mm -hmm. um, because public reasons is just this sort of unique category, which the idea is for public reason liberals anyway, that there is some sort of stock I guess, or common stock of public reasons, which are a special category of reasons Mm -hmm. that define the appropriate sorts of reasons or values or principles or whatever that can be invoked in political justification. The common ground, right? So it's basically fabled common ground. Yeah. And so like a a, kind of the classic example that's given, um, although uh, most political liberals now are not this coarse grained with how they're talking about it, um, is just to say, here's a rule you could have or a a view you could have about public reasons. Mm -hmm. Any law, and then also you could say this about public debate about a law, if you wanted to, you could separate those though too. But any law that is or can only be justified by appeal to religious reasons is unjustified or illegitimate Mm. or something like that. So for some public reason liberals, the view defines the space of public discourse. So they might say, like, if you're actually engaging in meaningful public discourse about laws, for instance, or other forms of social coercion, mm-hmm. they need to be done in the term of public reasons. Mm-hmm. So less, so perhaps religious reasons are excluded for, on, on that, you know, on the view I was just presenting. Um, other views don't have to do, don't have to say anything about public discourse um, and instead just say things about uh, what makes a law justified or legitimate within a particular society mm-hmm. and there they're just going to say it has to be justified by appeal to the public reason okay so it's, it's a variety of ways in which to try to frame discourse in theory to try to build sort of an agreed upon framework out of which we can then infer you know debate infer resolutions on non-agreed upon debates right, right. yeah okay right. yeah so i mean from rawls's picture uh, Rosal's picture in political liberalism, anyway, the idea is like, look, you know, contemporary democratic societies are characterized by substantial disagreement, mm-hmm. um, and that disagreement is, uh, or at least a good chunk of that disagreement, is what he calls reasonable. Um, of course, so like a bunch of the disagreement isn't because uh, people are being jerks or because they're just obviously wrong, right? It's just because shit's hard to figure out, uh, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I, <laughs> and, and he says, go ahead. I was just gonna say, so he, so he suggests like, given that, that, uh, that, that characterizes contemporary societies as significant diversity, and yet we have to live together. What he wants to kind of do is a, a bracketing strategy, mm-hmm. right? Let's bracket those things that we, the, those basic underlying commitments that we disagree on in order to find that core that we all supposedly agree on okay. and use that as our basis for justifying laws, for engaging in political debate, et cetera. So if I ask you, now the the million dollar question how do we bracket the public reasons from the contestable uh debatable things um i assume you will provide me with four or five different sects within this particular view that will uh explain you know 10 different approaches and the objections to those approaches that like (laughs) or attempts to try to give any account of a public reason in this way 
Yeah, more or less. Um, yeah, I mean, I, so I think there's there's one way to break it down just into two groups. Um, although mm-hmm. then you could actually have additional breakdowns within it. But the two group breakdown I think is helpful enough. Okay. Because uh, sort of the, the breakdown there is there's so between uh, consensus views uh, on one hand or consensus political liberalism, mm-hmm. uh, and then convergence views or convergence liberalism or convergence political liberalism. Um, and basically, uh, so the consensus view is usually linked with Rawls, although I and others think that in political liberalism, Rawls is actually sort of mixing the two views. Okay. But most people kind of associate him with the consensus views, and then like the diehard contemporary Rawlsians are tend to be in the consensus camp. And their view is that um, public reasons are shared reasons. So they're reasons that all of us either actually share or could access so that's like an epistemic term there but like we have access to them from our own perspectives Hmm. and the easy way to remember to think about that is like Mm -hmm. here's a reason that here's a reason that might be inaccessible to some people um because god said Mm so right if you're like an atheist if you're just a diehard atheist then because god said so is just not even within your sort of purview as a a reason that could even make sense to Mm -hmm. you so, right. so that one implies that there, are, that one implies that there are reasons that we should share, even though we don't share them actively in certain situations, right? Like, that's right. All the public reason views always have a theory of idealization okay. um, that's going to do a lot of the work of generating that um, that what counts as a public reason, basically. Right. This is going to this is going to be an objective and, 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 account is, ultimately, even though it, like, right, right, even though they might be starting from an anti-realist <laughs> place, they're going to be saying there are certain things that you ought to accept as a public reason, whether you do or not. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a common joke with right. Rawls, right? It's like, hey, look, I've spent all this time telling you that uh, uh, liberalism has to be based on all these things, and it turns out it's exactly the view I've been promoting all along. Uh, you know, independently of that, but yeah, so, so the, and the thing about consensus views Mm -hmm. is they are going to tend to need a really thick conception or a thick form of idealization Mm -hmm. in order for there to be a sufficient stock of shared reasons. Right. So for example, Uh, they have to to abstract a lot more from people. Mm -hmm. Right. So like the original position has to be really, really fleshed out such that it has to essentially smuggle in certain liberal assumptions in order to you know produce the kinds of uh outputs of principles that Rawls wants it to for example exactly yep. right okay yep. and so and so, and yeah, so go ahead. no go, go ahead. ahead yeah i was gonna say so following up on on that sort of concern with the consensus view convergence theorists um so here are the two main ones are gerald gauss and kevin vallier but there there are others as well they take issue with that sort of um high level of idealization Mm-hmm. as well as that sort of um, one way that, that Kevin puts it, for instance, in uh, one of his earlier books is because he, he's really concerned about the way liberal politics interact with people of faith. Mm-hmm. And so his, his real concern is like the idea of telling a person they have to bracket a core part of their identity in order to engage in community mm-hmm. or in, in political community anyway, um, seems pretty messed up. And that's a that's a argument that a variety of religious scholars have have leveled against public reason views, mm-hmm. and so for that reason and, and, and a variety of other reasons, um, convergence theorists basically say like, look, any reason can be relevant to justification. So they're not actually trying to develop a common stock of public reasons per uh-huh. se, but rather what matters from their perspective is that for any law or or other form of coercion, they're not always talking just about laws, but for any law. Um, what matters is that every person who is coerced by it uh, has a reason of their own to endorse mm-hmm. it, even if that reason is not shared by others. So in that view, right, like a convergence liberal is going to be happy to let religious reasons play a role in justification so long as even non-religious people have some reason right, right of their own. Uh, it's really it's really convergence so the, of conclusions versus convergence of uh, versus sort of coherence of reasons, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a nice way to think about the consensus convergence is like they're both actually promoting convergence. It's just at what level are they promoting it at the level of a law or, or some form of policy kind of thing right. or at the level of the reasons. Right. And and you could certainly make a non-theistic argument for against the sort of um, the uh, not the convergence, but the um, coherence model. Or no, no, what is it? Uh, um Consensus. consensus right thank you the consensus model right in a secular argument would be something like a care ethics argument that says that the sort of universalization and idealization away from 
individual agent relative properties is actually a, a move away from the position that we want people to be in when they're making their ethical judgments about the society that they want to be born into or something like that. Right. So they're, they're yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm using the religious sure. reasons because it's sort of the most, I think it's a good illustration, but yeah, it's by no means a, re a requirement that you think about it. In that yeah. Way. No, I just want to make clear since we have a substantial uh, secular portion of our audience that, that, you know, these are not right, right, yeah. uh, just concerns that, you know, like you could also raise these arguments from white nationalist perspectives too. Right. And you could reject the, the sort of basic equality assumptions that I think um, folks like Rawls bake into their arguments and just say, no, I just genuinely believe that like different groups are different and should be treated differently. Um, and I think that that makes it hard for him to say that even um, basic principles of equality count as public reasons. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but here's another way, like here's the other kind of big mm -hmm. argument that like convergence theorists will make that excludes the religious part um, is that if we start with this sort of belief or this, it, assumption or, or however we want to justify it that that all people are free and equal right and, and this is supposedly what Rawls is kind of doing he's like look the notion of all people being free and equal sort of baked into a democratic society and so he wants to mm -hmm. sort of um pull pull liberalism out of democracy mm -hmm. basically or justify liberalism out of democracy um and so we start with the idea of freedom and equality and this idea that people disagree but that that many of these disagreements are reasonable mm -hmm. right um and so we start with all that idea, and then Rawls's picture is to say, "All right, well, let's just get rid of all that disagreement, right? Let's let's mm -hmm. let's bracket all of that in order to create, in order to just to focus on the share stock." But the con the convergence people are like, "That seems just disrespectful to everyone, mm -hmm. right? It just seems to not even fit the basic view. The basic view was people are free and equal, and that leads to massive amounts of reasonable disagreement. You don't solve that problem by effectively abstracting away from that disagreement. That makes no sense. Right. Instead, you need a in order to properly respect people." Uh, as free and equal, you have to respect them as whole persons, basically. Uh -huh. and so the convergence views uh, are going to have a much thinner. They still have a conception of idealization. They're not populist, right. but they but their their conception of idealization is much thinner uh -huh. as a result um, because they don't need it to be thicker in order to get the view off the ground in the way that uh, consensus views. Right, to. and from what I remember, you used to be in favor of convergence and are still completely supporting it because there are no problems with it. Is that correct? <laughs> absolutely no uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah i uh i was always a bit uneasy with the convergence. so i think if you're going to be a public reason liberal you better be a convergence okay. liberal. i think that's still okay yeah exactly but i was always a bit uneasy with it and i think it's just because i've been a bit uneasy forever or ever since i started doing philosophy with uh like social contract style mm. um thinking and stuff like that and I, in public reason thinking, it there, there is sort of a deontic Kantian element going on there, especially with someone like Rawls, but it's also a heavy contractualist um, sort of way of thinking too. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I think I've always been drawn to that sort of stuff. I mean, the very first thing in philosophy I ever read was like social contract theory stuff from Hobbes and Locke. Sure. So um, I was drawn to it, but I also always was uneasy with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that, un that uneasiness continued because... Uh, when I was writing my dissertation, which defends convergence liberalism, I, I had one advisor who was all in on convergence liberalism and another who thought the entire public reason project, and especially the convergence project, uh, is is hopeless. <laughs> and so I think I was always constantly pulled back and forth between the two. Yeah, sounds um, like philosophy. And so so, so yeah. do you feel like it's yeah. ultimately hopeless, that like there is no like set of public uh, conclusions that we can agree everyone should converge on if they were like no matter what their initial reasons are? I wouldn't necessarily say that. I mean, I think I think there's a lot of really good stuff that everyone can learn, or at least all liberals and can learn from engagement with public reason liberalism and especially the convergence view. I think there's a lot of useful ideas in there. I just think the um, sort of what the view is actually trying to do, which for all of them is basically craft a principle of legitimacy, mm -hmm. at least that's what that's what Rawls says in political liberalism is, you know, he defines this liberal principle of legitimacy, which for other public reason liberals has just become the principle of public justification. Mm -hmm. And the idea, at least for Rawls, was that this was supposed to be like a an easier benchmark to hit than justice. So it should have been possible for a non-fully just society to nonetheless still be legitimate or still have legitimate mm -hmm. um, laws or whatever. And... And I think for his, what's interesting is I think he, 
his view kind of succeeds at that. The view that he's definitely pushing would be uh, it's easier to hit legitimacy than it is to hit justice, basically. Mm -hmm. But for the convergence views, they end up establishing a unanimity condition where it's like literally unless unless every single person affected by the law has sufficient reason of their own to endorse it, then the law is illegitimate. Mm -hmm. And that just, I mean, so that, that seems like a theory, that seems like a radical democratic theory of justice to me, where it's basically, right, as opposed to majoritarian politics or even super majoritarian politics, it's unanimous politics. Especially because in, in that format, right, we're not idealizing the person's reasons, right? So we're saying even the people who have really problematic, like, you know, you know, misaligned reasons or something like that, we still have to be able to get them to converge, right? Because we can't just say, you know, all people who have all the right reasons will converge on this thing. Then we're back to the uh, consensus liberalism, right? Right. I, I mean, again, the convergence people do have a theory of idealization. So it's not just any reason that any actual person actually has, but it's closer to mm -hmm. that than it is for like a consensus view. And so because there's still going to be a massive stock uh, or, you know, almost any reasons can count. Mm -hmm. and, and more importantly for this, for this point, it's not that so many reasons can count in justification, but rather that so many reasons can count against justification. Uh -huh, right. The unanimity condition says everyone has to have sufficient reason. Well, one reason, you know, you might not have sufficient reason of your own if you have reasons to defeat that proposal, right? right? And so basically there's a, almost an unlimited stock of defeater reasons, and that's what can um, – one of the reasons that can be particularly problematic. Although mm -hmm. I, I have defended in print that I don't think that that objection is sufficient to – to get to get rid of the convergence liberalism, I do think there's ways for that to handle it, but I don't. But I nonetheless think it's a it's still a difficulty, basically, that the view has to deal with. Okay, so if both these views have substantial difficulties, what is liberalism actually bringing to the table for us at this point? Is there anything we can salvage here amongst the wreckage of liberalism? Liberalism generally, or the public reason? Anything in the public uh, reason, you know, either convergence or coherence. Do you feel like do you feel like we should take anything away from public reason liberalism other than just like the basic idea that it's good for people to have to give justification and to be held accountable if they can't give what seems like reasonable justification. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that partly captures the idea. I think the other part that cap that's, I think important is um, the idea of public justification, right? The idea that justification, and, and you see this all over the place in a lot of liberal thought, right? Mm -hmm. That um, I think the classic sort of phrase from Rawls is, it's not good enough for justice to be done. Justice has to be seen to be done or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same kind of thing here. Justification is not good enough for something to be justified. The justification has to be public in some sense. Now, for convergence liberals, that publicness is just that everyone has a reason. It's not that everyone knows each other's reasons necessarily. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, I think the idea that we should care about public justification and that to the degree a law is more broadly supported right, by, by the population, to that degree, that makes the law more legitimate. Mm -hmm. Right, it might still be unjust, right? I mean, so so notice you could have like a, a an entire population of really terrible people, and so they all agree on a really terrible idea, mm. and the fact that they agree counts in favor of it. I mean, so that's my point. I like the the fact that they actually all have reason to endorse it from their own perspectives is a good making feature, um, but it's not the only relevant feature we should be concerned with mm. um, in thinking about this sort of stuff. Interesting. Yeah, I'm curious actually to. It's probably getting too far into weeds to be like, is it really a good making feature or is it just like not having this would be a bad making feature, but having it doesn't actually make it a good making feature. But maybe that's that's probably way too far into the weeds. And I wanted to I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking also about utilitarian liberalism, because I know that you are sympathetic to to that kind of view. Um, do you. So what does it mean to be a utilitarian liberal? Uh, is that to say that. Like we prioritize utility over all ethical considerations. Is it to say that, um, you know, does the equity of the distribution of the utility matter in your mind as a utilitarian liberal? How does that view sort of play out on the ground that way? Yeah, good. So, so um, some people might be familiar with the idea of like government house utilitarianism, mm -hmm. um, but more generally, kind of part of the idea here is that, strictly speaking, something like the principle of utility is still doing all the work, but it's doing it from like so many steps back that it's not really our main focus in many cases. Mm -hmm. Like our main, our main, you know, it's not, it's not what's right in front of our mind when we're actually having political debate per se, but instead we can derive a variety of intermediate principles or intermediate concepts. And that's where 
for instance, a conception of liberty comes in or a conception of equality, a conception of stability, um, a conception of peace, a conception of community, things like those. That's where those come in. But they, they're, of course, given a utilitarian flavor because they're derived from the principle of utility. Mm-hmm. Um, so the conceptions that I would have are going to be different from conceptions that other people might have of liberty and equality, et cetera. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, and so that's, and that's where a lot of the work gets done is like trying to figure out how to trade off these sort of intermediate principles or intermediate values, um, that we might have. But the, the benefit of this in part is like, because utilitarianism is all the way in the background doing the work at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. we have a way of, um, comparing what appear to be incommensurable values. Okay. So you, you like the, you like the utilitarianism part of it because it allows us to, you know widen the public sphere as much as possible in terms of translating as many things into a a shared language of value there though of course right the same concerns we were discussing earlier about the homogenizing of people's reasons when we strip them behind the veil of ignorance right you might also be worried that uh in in reducing everybody's concerns down to utility even at that very very far down the line level that we may still be missing potentially some of the the meaning that some people assign to some of the things that they find valuable. Are you concerned at all about that kind of pushback? Um, I mean, in one sense, mm-hmm. yes. Um, so, so I, I mentioned those various principles of liberty, equality, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, I don't mean to treat that as like exhaustive by any means. I mean, it's, so it's not supposed to be a view about public reasons about what sort of reasons count mm-hmm. really anything is, is open. Right. I mean, if our goal is to promote, uh, happiness basically right uh, maximize happiness um all sorts of things make people happy oh, i wasn't i wasn't um, saying that like it was, yeah. it was closing things off i was saying that like some people might resist saying well i don't want my you know love of my traditions to be fed into the utility calculation is just you know happiness oh. or something like that right i want them to be you know wait like well you know Kant will come along and say well no the, they have infinite intrinsic value right you can't just you know reduce it down to this shared calculus or something yeah, and I, so I think what I'd say there, so I, I, yeah, it's different from what I was thinking before. What I'll say there, I guess, is like, for me, one of the big things I think that counts in favor of utilitarian liberalism mm-hmm. um, is that I think it can help us make sense uh, of, it does the best job, I should say, of making sense of the complexity and the considerations at play in political decision-making and sort of captures a truth about the political moral terrain that it's that there's just a whole bunch of stuff out there that we're just sort of trading off in a variety of ways and people have different weightings all over the place and and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. in compared to like in comparison to something like a deontical deontological theory that's going to privilege certain types of things mm-hmm. uh, much more because they're going to be grounded in the the nature of persons or something like that um i think so 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 there's sort of a practical justification for sort of deriving liberal mm-hmm. concepts from a utilitarian background as well even if it's not um, you know, cause I, I don't, I don't have a particular view about whether this is the true view of mm-hmm. political politics or something like that. I don't really care per se about that. It's a useful view. Um, I think it gets a lot right. Um, but part of what it gets right is the practical stuff, not necessarily the theoretical stuff. Although I don't, I don't think it's theoretically wrong. I just am not as concerned in some that's cases. Fair. And I think that's an interesting point that you're sort of entwined in there, which is that like, it, sometimes utilitarianism can be viewed as kind of like flattening in the sense that it takes all value and flattens it out to be just utility or something like that. But I think it is also a good point that sophisticated utilitarianism can allow for the respecting of a lot more appeals to value than something like a deontological rule system that like if you can't find a rule to explain why the thing is valuable then your you know your appeals to your personal valuing of it are viewed as much more skeptically i think than like utilitarians will say well okay look if you really love that thing then we're gonna weigh your loving of it in the equation because you really do love that thing and we don't we don't make a ton of judgments about why you might or might not love that thing exactly yeah but at the, of course, at the political level, inevitably, we're making mm-hmm. decisions that affect, uh, affect an entire society or something like that. So some of those kind of weird ones, those weird things that are fitting in there, you know, love of weird things that mm-hmm. hurt other people, or like that, they're never going to win the day in the larger picture. Sure. But it doesn't, but not because we exclude them. It's just because they're not strong enough relative to everything else. And, and but we will pretty on. heavily go to the mat more than previous societies have in terms of if the thing that you find you really enjoy is 
weird and very not public reasony, but also doesn't like substantially harm other people. Like we'll we'll, we'll push for your right to engage in that particular activity, um, and I think that is one Absolutely. major benefit of that this kind of view is that it respects private utility in that kind of way. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So yeah. so let me ask you then, uh, since we're talking about applied things here, some would you say that utilitarian liberalism necessarily is going to be a fairly demanding sort of political ethics in terms of how much we need to do as a society to be ethical or does it not necessarily have to be but you think that it should be how would you how would you sort of cash this out in terms of you know like what is what does our society need to be doing right now to be getting in line with utilitarian liberalism yeah so i mean i do think it's a pretty radical view it does require us to you know, if you were trying to hit the ideal, mm -hmm. um, although of course I don't think this, I don't think the cool thing about utilitarianism, but perhaps the thing some people don't like about it or utilitarian liberalism is it doesn't provide an obvious picture of the ideal, mm -hmm. right? Because it's like very context specific. Um, but if you were trying to hit the ideal where you're trying to, to maximize happiness through the way of, of maximizing liberty to the extent that that helps with happiness, maximizing equality to the extent that um, hits uh, happiness, et cetera. Um, it's going to be pretty demanding, mm -hmm. and I think that that makes we see that in the history of liberalism or history of utilitarian liberalism, right? Bentham and Mill and others mm -hmm. were pretty radical in a lot of their views. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, we're not we're not anywhere close, I guess, to many of the things we'd want to do. But I think that's true of liberalism generally speaking. I think other you know non-utilitarian liberals should be saying the same mm -hmm. thing, um, to be honest. So, like you know. Uh, just some basic things. We definitely have excessive criminalization right now, right? Mill was talking about that issue <laughs> back in Victorian Britain, and we're still, we still haven't fixed it, you know? Exponentially um, worse. Way, we made it worse. Yeah, yeah. So things like that, I also think there needs to be um, more focus, and, and this is the other reason I like utilitarian liberalism, or, or think it, it's helpful anyway, is it, it can make sense of why something like a sort of classical liberal view where it's mostly laissez-faire kind of stuff it can make sense of why that would be a good vision of a society mm -hmm. uh if certain conditions were met anyway mm -hmm. um but it can also simultaneously makes sense of why given the society we actually find ourselves in um, that's not the right way to go and rather we do actually need to incorporate elements of social justice um mm -hmm. and, and, and rectification and stuff like that and as opposed to, you know, there's, there's always kind of this problem with these views that do have an ideal perspective of what society should look like that they often basically try to fake it until they make it, mm -hmm. I guess, right? They're like, I'm just going to act like my ideal's been met. And so I don't need to do any of the things that other people are telling me I need to do. Mm -hmm. Yet, and yet we're not getting any closer. They don't even think they are. They just, as long as they act like the ideal tells them to act, everything's good, right. even if it's not meeting the ideal. Do they, are there specific policies? I know we've talked a little bit before about things like universal basic income or the things like that that you feel like are, are really significant in terms of what we need to be pushing towards in order to achieve this? Or do you feel like you don't entirely have a full sense of like which exact policies are the right way to sort of evolve our society towards uh, the utilitarian liberal ideal that we can't quite define? Or... Uh, I mean, do you think there are some that are just like absolutely we need to be pushing for right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will say I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of uh, universal basic income. I'm not necessarily going to say it's absolutely essential to achieve our ends, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, the, again, sort of what, one thing I like about utilitarian liberalism is it's not going to advocate any particular policy um, in any given situation. It's going to say you have certain types of things you need to achieve and you should use whatever helps you achieve those things. Um, and so I think a UBI does do that um, for us. And I think there's a pretty direct utilitarian case for UBI, of course. Um, but there's also a more general sort of broadly liberal case for it, even if you're not a utilitarian liberal. And so well, and one reason, I think one way to get there, um, mm -hmm. which might upset some other liberals, is that I think, uh, and it sort of tilts my hand with the, the utilitarian liberalism, mm -hmm. is I think any view, any liberal view that's sort of worth anything has to have a thicker notion of individual freedom than merely being left alone. Mm -hmm. right. so it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be the full-on sort of positive views about freedom or anything like that, um, but there has to be a recognition that basically freedom isn't merely having not having people stop you. It has to be that you have at least some minimal level of effective agency, mm -hmm. some minimal ability to achieve your ends, whatever those ends might be. Mm -hmm. 
Gerald Gauss actually talks about this, and he 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 presents the idea of individual agency as what he thinks is basically a a shared reason or a shared idea, I should say, um, that's just inherent in the way that we conceive of ourselves as persons. So it's not a you know, it's not the thick level of autonomy that Mill might promote or or, or more um, recent perfectionist liberals promote. It's more minimal than that, but still more than being left alone. And so I think a UBI speaks to helping people get closer to having that minimum level of effective agency. Yeah, and I think you could you could sort of make the the idea of effective agency palatable to folks who might not necessarily identify with the liberal agenda by, you know, when I hear folks talk about things like overtaxation, what I hear them complaining about in principle is a loss of effective agency, this feeling like, you know, they're making this money that's then getting taken away from them and someone else, you know, even if the people are doing good with it, right? Like, there's this feeling that you don't get to spend the money, you don't get to have the agency to bring about the change in the world in that kind of way. And I, so I think maybe you could combine, a, you know, a combination about reform of the taxation system so that, you know, the people who are getting taxed to pay for that UBI, their effective agency is not being reduced because they are largely billionaires and such like that. Um, and also make the, you know, make the case seem more palatable, I guess. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that seems right. I mean, I, I appreciate the way you pitch it. I, I think I, plenty of people I hear when they complain about taxation are, are just talking about being left alone. So I'm not sure, you know, it, they're not really complaining about effective agency in some cases, at mm -hmm. least. It's just like, I just don't want my money taken, even if the taking of my money actually does make my agency more effective, which it totally mm -hmm. could, right? If, if a, a government takes tax money from you to build roads that you're using in order to achieve your ends, right, right now it's easier for you to achieve your ends as a result, they've they've probably enhanced your freedom. They haven't actually taken your freedom away on the whole, yep. right? If you combine the you know, the taxation with the building of the roads or whatever. That's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a, it's a dirtier situation basically, or a more complex situation to think about how freedom is affected by um, government policy or by social policy or whatever the case may be. Yeah. I think that's a good point. And I think you've, you've mentioned a lot of things along the way here that I think are, are valuable and, and why, like I continue to include liberal in the list of categories that I would accept as being identified with, even if I don't value necessarily heavily identifying with categories or anything, but along with progressive and the left and such, I do think that a lot of these principles are kind of important, especially in the economic stuff. Um, now you've mentioned we sort of we sort of obliquely referenced a variety of the ways that this uh, touches up against the current social justice uh, debates and the culture war debates and such. Um, and so in a discussion of liberalism, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you your thoughts about whether things like critical studies or critical theory uh, is itself a liberal. Um, and so at odds with the, the view that you've been describing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess by first, I, before I can answer that, I need to know what critical theory is, right? So like right. The, is the, you, the word, the term gets bandied about and, I, and there's, there's actually been evolution of critical theory through the times as well. So I guess what, what sort of critical theory are you, how, do you have in mind when you say yeah, that? Yes, I mean, these are sort of, a, you're right, it is very much a cluster concept at this point, but it's sort of a cluster of uh, theories that have been developed in the critical studies, you know, things like gender studies and, and racial studies, and sometimes folks include education in there as well. And these are, um, you know, theories like intersectionality or um, concerns about, um, you know, I guess obviously like the, the one that people have been talking about a lot recently though I wish I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we're slowly moving away from discussing it which is the white fragility stuff um, so there's lots of different things that I think get sort of clustered under this banner but I think broadly speaking it's the the theories that are sort of attempting to highlight and analyze and provide correctives for a variety of systemic inequalities and and problems in society yeah, so I guess under that sort of broader description, mm -hmm. so, so without taking a stand about any particular instances of critical theory, which may or may not fit the bill, mm -hmm. but the broader idea of sort of critically reflecting on existing society in order to identify where there are injustices or inequalities or uh, loss of freedoms and stuff like that, you know, I think, yeah, uh, liberalism definitely needs that mm -hmm. because for reasons I just kind of said earlier, which is like, uh, we definitely haven't hit the ideal society that any any liberal theory would tell us to be at. Um, so we we should accept we have plenty of ways to plenty of places to move, right, and plenty of of 
ways we need to reform and 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 move forward. Um, and so, insofar as critical theory contributes to identifying what those things are, then it's very beneficial. Okay. And so, so with that perspective, for instance, I, I see like Charles Mills, mm-hmm. for instance, as being a good example of that. He he's uh, he at least claims, and I think most people would stick him in, in some sort of critical theory camp. But of course, he doesn't. Um, he does all this work, sort of uh, genealogical work and other stuff on the development of liberalism and liberal ideas to show that they're racialized and, and whatnot. But he doesn't then as a result say, so liberalism's totally mm-hmm. pooey, right? He instead says, there's still plenty for us to to work out there that's important. And like, for instance, concepts like freedom and equality are important concepts, even if they, mm-hmm. um, you know, even if the way we've been conceiving of them is wrong. And, um, but doing the genealogical work or more generally doing the critical theory work, um, helps us identify where those mistakes are, where we might need to think differently about things. And and so, you know, one good example of that, which isn't necessarily fitting with critical theory per se, but I, but close is like the way we've evolved our thinking about what individual freedom actually means. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, from, from just be left alone view to something more, more thick, right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's actually part of what justifies that movement is at least the work by feminist thinkers about why this sort of just be left alone view is just inappropriate. And other people have said similar mm-hmm. things. Um, so, so critical theory is useful for motivating us to rethink elements of liberalism. But I think that it can be problematic um, mm-hmm. in other cases where not necessarily where it tells us to forgo liberalism, because maybe that turns out to be correct in the long run. Maybe it is a you know hopeless. I and I'm open to that possibility. I just don't think it's true right now. But rather where um, you know critical theory is mostly negative in, by right. by intention, and so I think where people try to use it as a positive theory is where things go go wrong because there there there's just a gap there. Right. We need something in the middle to get us from the, the negative stuff to the positive. Stuff. Yeah. And I want to I want to ask with the, the liberalism and practice side of that, because I can imagine that some folks who are listening might feel like I'm going too easy on, on my description of critical theory there and that it's the practice of it, that it's the real liberal problem. But I just want to just get sort of crystal clear here for a second. Do you feel like, generally speaking, if someone identifies as a liberal, then they should pretty wholeheartedly acknowledge that we are still living in a sort of substantially, you know, racist or unjust society in these various kind of ways, and that they as a liberal have a moral obligation to sort of address those social injustices, even on, you know, even while also acknowledging overreaches and concerns about practice that I'll ask here in a second. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and again, I think that just fits with with thinking about the history mm-hmm. of at least utilitarian liberalism, right? Like Mill and don't get me wrong, Mill and Bentham had bad ideas mm-hmm. too, right? Of course, like Mill defended Mill defended colonialism and, and whatnot, but but uh, by and large, they were constantly critical of the of the system that they were mm-hmm. in, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were never happy with with the, the way things were looking, and I, and I think that's and I think that's one thing that mm-hmm. I guess people self-described leftists or progressives sometimes say der- uh, derisively about self-described liberals, mm-hmm. right? Is like Oh, liberals just say, just go out there and just vote the person out in office. And that's all you need to do, right? Just go vote, right? right. <laughs> and like, that's all there is. But but I just think that's, I mean, I, there are probably people who call themselves liberals who have that view, don't get me wrong. But I don't think that is a correct way to interpret liberal political philosophy. Liberal political philosophy, when c- compared to, or when used to look at the society we're in, is always, not to say always, but certainly anytime in the near future and now uh, going to push us to be pretty radical in what we demand for reform and everything. So if, if we're going to demand sort of radicalism in a variety of ways, what is that then? And this will be our last question because I realize we're running short on time here, but I'm just curious, like the liberalism of things like censoring or deplatforming or, you know, are there situations in which because of the now well-worn paradox of liberalism or paradox of tolerance, right? Do you feel like there are some situations in which something that some people would call illiberalism, right? Kicking Alex Jones off Twitter, for example, right? Do you think that that is a, a good or healthy form of a liberalism? Do you think that's not even a liberalism? How would you characterize an action like that? Yeah, so I think, uh, of course, the devil's going to be in the details, sure. but I do think that there can be t- that every, actually, I should say this, every liberal view has various constraints and limits built into them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
usually built into their conceptions of freedom, their conceptions of equality or, or, or what derives from that and, so, and whatnot. So I don't think it's necessarily a liberal to, to, to want to establish certain ground rules for engagement in civil society, for instance. Mm -hmm. so, so I don't think that constitutes being less than maximally liberal okay. just because you don't want every possible thing to be said. But of course, how you go about it, what you're trying to push on, all that stuff is going to be open for debate. So I think there, it's right to have a debate about where the ground rules mm -hmm. are, because mm -hmm. I think the ground rules have been in the wrong place for too mm -hmm. long. But there's, but of course, um, I guess those of us pushing for changing of the ground rules also need to be really careful about how we do it, because we can easily get overzealous with Absolutely. it. I think that's very well put. So I think I'll leave it there. Um, and I have to now put you to the screws. So welcome to the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. I need to ask you a series of things, and you're going to tell me if these things are real or not real. Do you understand? <laughs> yes, I don't get to justify any of my answers. You're not going right? to justify any of your answers. You're not going to define what you mean by real. It is either real or not real. There is no middle ground. <laughs> All right? Are like you it. ready? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I have to prime the pump here. Is anything real? Yes. Okay. Let's find out what's real. So, <laughs> is the external world real? Uh, yes. <laughs> Are colors <laughs> real? <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness? Yes. Free will? Um, yeah. Okay. Are selves or persons real? Um, the human enemy wants to say no, but I'm going to say yes. <laughs> Genders? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, that's what I really would prefer to explain, but that's okay. Nope. Races? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Species? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even though I've written, I, I've written the opposite. <laughs> yeah, okay. Good job. <laughs> like a true philosopher. Morality? Um, is morality real? Is that what you're asking? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. Okay. Are rights real? <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. It's gonna be coming from me, I think. But yeah. <laughs> it's fine. Nobody cares. Uh, knowledge. Um. Yes. Okay. God or gods? Uh, no. Society. Um. Yeah. Okay. Money. <laughs> yes. Numbers? Uh yeah. Fictional characters. <laughs> um uh yeah, they're real. Alright. Holes like a hole in the ground. <laughs> yes. Chairs. <laughs> uh I mean there are definitely things arranged chair wise. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chairs are real. Chairs are real, chairs are real. Okay, great. Sandwiches. <laughs> Sandwiches are real. Okay. Science. Uh, I don't even know. I don't know what it means for science to be real, but I'm gonna go with yes. Okay, great. Natural laws. Um, yes, under certain description. Mm -hmm. Beauty. Yes. Causality. Uh, yeah. Okay, and finally, time. <laughs> yes. All right, you survived. How do you feel? Uh, I feel like if anyone listens to that, they're going to have a lot of questions for me. <laughs> it's okay. No one ever listens to this, so no one ever complains, so everything's fine. <laughs> well, I was, thank working, you. I was working with like five conceptions of reality there to make sense of all that. I know it's hard, right? It's hard to keep stick to <laughs> just one definition of reality with all those different categories. <laughs> yeah. Um, I thought you did very admirably for someone who clearly fell too far on the realist side and so will get canceled. Um, but it's that kind of show, you know, got to pander to the audience. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Marcus. This has been a lot of fun and it's been great getting to catch up. Um, I missed our, our hangouts. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find any of your work or things like that? Uh, sure. Um, so I actually do have a, a website that um, has any of my published work on it, but I also write a lot about pedagogy on there as well. Mm. Um, so just my last name, Schultzbergen, but without the hyphen, 
hopefully, I guess if they're reading, listening to your podcast, they'll see my name spelled out. So they'll figure it out. Um, mm-hmm. Schultzbergman.xyz is the uh, website. And you're on Twitter as well. Oh yeah, I'm on Twitter as well. I don't know what my thing is on Twitter though. <laughs> Professional. <laughs> this is a top shelf. <laughs> uh, we're really crushing it here. Yeah, no, I need to have you back on at some point. <laughs> I realize I have to have you back on to discuss pedagogy. We need to do that. That'd be fun. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so at Schultzbergen is the Twitter handle. Again, no hyphen, just my last name without the hyphen. Okay, there you go. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate you coming on. And I feel not any clearer about whether or not I should necessarily continue to identify as a liberal, but I think it was a valuable discussion of the many flavors of liberalism. Fair enough. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T. And thanks so much to our top tier patrons, the venerable Richard Milhouse Nixon and Dave Maslish. Really, none of this would be possible without you. If you'd like to support the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you our bonus book club content. Most importantly, never forget, you are the void and the void is you. (laughs) 